so I'm going to start off with um, a very weird topic for me, something that I wasn't really famili familiar with until um, recently, let's say. Uh, many of you possibly heard about Shatila, which is a refugees camp in Beirut. Um, it's mainly focused on hosting Palestinian refugees, and recently, in the past few years, um, it has been uh, hosting an influx of Syrian refugees who also came from Yarmouk in Syria. Um, so first, I started visiting Shatila in 2013, and I was this, you know, young uh, woman reporter who's going there from a very different background, not knowing what to expect in a camp. It's a very crowded place. It smells horrible. The streets are like two packed. Um, you can find uh, grocery shops here, cars moving there, and I have no clue how cars manage to get into that camp. It's so weird, but somehow the people are living. And now, to my surprise, I was there um, covering uh, the massacre of Shatila, which had happened in, uh, in the 80s in Lebanon. So like every year, um, a news station decides to write a piece or to shoot a video about it. And I was there helping a journalist with the work. And as we were moving in the camp, um, this guy, Abu Khaled, was actually telling us the story. He had witnessed it. He was a little kid, and he still remembers and has flashbacks about it. And for someone who has a wild imagination, such as myself, it was a horrible moment. I was walking. I didn't know what to do. I was imagining bodies here and there, imagining the smell. And I was so caught up in the moment. And all of a sudden, I just I see this lady who's 80 years old wearing purple, like flashy purple, and a hijab. And she's just sitting on a table with a sewing machine. And she's working. She seemed to be like working very hard. And I stopped for a moment. And I'm like, Abu Khaled, who's this? And he sounded very surprised. He was like, Walau, excuse me, in Arabic. This is Um Ghazwan. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I don't know who Um Ghazwan is. And he's like, this is our very famous fashion designer. She can literally fix anything. She can make wedding dresses. She can, she can you know, sew little holes in your, in your outfits. And she's really famous. And you should actually meet her. And I was intimidated at first because the lady seemed to be, you know, caught up in working. And she, she has this desk in the middle of the street. So I didn't want to really impose myself. I approached her and I introduced myself. And she was very friendly. Um, her like her purple outfit, her abaya, her like her dress was was handmade, and I think that she had made it herself with her hijab. She was smiling. She didn't really care about her cracked teeth or anything. Neither did she about her wrinkles. And I started talking to her. And as I was actually covering a massacre, it turns out that there's this really inspiring woman sitting right next to me. And she told me that her dream was to be this fashion designer. But being a Palestinian in the refugee camp and witnessing the massacre, which I was actually writing about, didn't really help her. So we ended up talking, and she told me that I know that this is not the best place to work. I know this is not the best situation. But I'm doing something that I love. And I managed to hold on to my dream. And everyone should. And at that moment, it hit me. Like, there are positive stories just around the corner. This lady is sitting there working, and I'm just, you know, worried about what to write about the massacre and the blood and all of that. And she was really inspiring. And so I think that starting that day, everything changed for me in that camp. I used to walk in as a total stranger. Someone used to guide me in from the guys. And right now, if I go to Shatila, I know where to grab a cup of coffee. I know Adil, who's like the most famous person there who hands in these amazing tomatoes. So I make sure to pick a bag while going out. 
and I no longer feel like a stranger who needs to rush home and to take a shower and to sit down and write my story. It feels like I'm someone who's actually there just listening to people rather than just, you know, taking um, the time to write some, some stuff up. Um, and like Shatila is not the only place that caught my attention. Um, there was this, uh, there's this town um, called Masharial A. It's in, uh, it's in the Bekaa, and it's really, it's a, it's a controversial place because there are a lot of farms there, farms owned by Lebanese and Syrian families. So like there's no clear borders in that area. In 2012, this was my first adventure, and I was working actually with Now Lebanon. There were news about the borders being shelled by the Syrian forces and the farmers having nowhere to go. And there was no news station in Lebanon broadcasting or, you know, writing anything about that. And so a fellow journalist and myself had this crazy idea of just going there and making sure that what is being told is real. Like, is there shelling happening? And of course, no one encouraged us to do that, but we decided to try to because there are farmers, farmers there and actual Syrian families who had moved from Syria. So the point is, is that we went there we slept through the night. The shelling was horrible. I was so afraid that I didn't even go to the bathroom that night. But the morning came up, and the family which was hosting us, they were so positive that I ended up, we ended up, both of us, writing two stories about that, about how a family of 10 people manages to be so positive and so happy, regardless of what's happening overnight. It's like we woke up the next morning. There was a breakfast tea, coffee, not like the kids were screaming at night or that we were all terrified. And then the guy who was hosting us decided to take us on a tour. And on a tour in, in a border area which is actually being shelled. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, it's broad daylight now, so no one's going to do anything. And as we were taking the road there and just like doing the tour in the car, he's like, but just watch out. Don't, don't point your fingers like here and there because there are snipers. And he was saying it, and he was like so cool about it. And I'm like, w will it hurt if I actually got shot? Like, will my hand hurt? I was thinking about that. And he was like, you know, nothing is going to happen, but just don't point out fingers. And we finished the tour, and the guy was decided that he wanted to head to the, to the actual borders. He was just making a joke. He was like, and now we're going to go and meet the Syrian army. And I'm like, wait. <laughs> He's like, I'm joking, maybe the next time. So... He, he had like this amazing sense of humor, regardless of everything bad that was happening around him. Um, and speaking of Syria and the borders, um, this, this weird thing is that I cover one of the stories that are closer to my heart, which is Syria. And working with Syrian uh, activists and media activists is fundamental for you to get information as a journalist or as a fixer. And being in Lebanon means that I have to stay in constant, uh, keep in constant contact with them and talk to them most of the time. And so one of the, one of the most amazing, inspiring stories is their resilience, how resilient they are. In 2014, I was really um, communicating closely with people from Al-Ghuta. Al-Ghuta is an area which was besieged in the suburbs of Damascus. Um, the situation there was horrible for years. Only recently, Al-Ghuta started to get like a lot of media attention with the deals happening and all of that to evacuate the people. And one day, I was just sitting in the office and writing a story, trying to get quotations. And one of the media activists there who runs a center for media, for media and all of that, um, sent me a message and he's like, we're being shelled. Because I was talking to him and we were supposed to set a call and he disappeared. And then 10 minutes later he comes back and he's like, yeah, it hit close, but we're fine. 
and then he went back, and then he was going back and forth trying to tell me that he's fine, and at the end of like 20 minutes later, he ended up calling me. I don't know how he got satellite internet at that point, and he was laughing, he was making jokes, he was like, you overreact, and I don't know why you're so afraid and worried. We're fine. And I'm like, I wanted to ask him questions, but I couldn't. And at that point, I think that Syria is one of the places in which it makes me really like tear up and laugh, laugh my ass off at the same time because it's so complicated. You wouldn't know how to deal with it. Same thing happens in Aleppo when the guys in AMC in Aleppo Media Center were all imprisoned there and were they, like they had nowhere to go, they were besieged. You would talk to the guys, you would ask them questions about the situation and they would make jokes. Like a hospital was being shelled, it was 4 a.m. I was trying to call them and they were like, you're panicking, why are you panicking? You're in Lebanon and I'm like, I'm in Lebanon but I'm worried about you guys and about the people. So I guess that they just have this strong sense of resilience. Every person finds this within them. I don't know how they do it. I know that I broke down too many times because covering Syria is not really easy. Um, one, of, one of also the weird stories about Syria is that when a place is being shelled, um, the activists, they don't really rush there to see um, if there are people dead or not. They go there to see whether the people like made it in one piece or not, like whether they lost an arm or lost a leg, and I really don't know how they deal with that, but I guess again that this is called resilience. They have their own way, and so I really wanted to share this about them. Um, and, and then um, there are some things that really hit close to home. Uh, one, of, uh, one of the weird stories that I covered um, was uh, the drowning of my own family. So a part of my family decided, which are half Lebanese, half Syrian, they decided to, to make it through Europe. And they decided to go through Turkey and to deal with smugglers. And I had no idea that this was happening. And two days later, I find out that they actually drowned. So my editors at um, the place where I used to work asked me if I felt compelled to write about it and honestly I really wanted to because this was my family and I felt really responsible whether it was professional or not I was at, at debate with myself but I wanted to so I covered the story and it was really negative and horrible and I was like I spent the night asking myself how could I portray this in the best way possible and then two weeks later I get these messages on my Facebook inbox which are two messages uh, a woman from Tripoli in Lebanon and another woman uh, from Syria living in Beirut, they wanted to meet me and they sent me like these thank you notes because I encouraged them through my story to take a step back and not to go and um, take a trip in the sea to meet their husbands in Germany. And so I ended up writing about these two women. Uh, I did like small portraits about them and I really just felt that something that I did, like a story that I've written, really uh, had an impact on someone. Um, and one of the other stories is that um, sometimes we deal with death in a different way. I don't know how many of you heard of the journalist called Najil Jarf who was assassinated in Gaziantep in Turkey. Naji was a really close friend. Um, he was inspiring in so many ways. And um, it took me a year to write uh, 1,600 words about him. And when I decided to write, everyone thought that this was going to be a negative story. Like, I'm going to just, you know, write stuff that, like, cry or say that I, I miss him, I wish he did that, I wish he did this. But no, the fact is that I managed to write a very positive story about what he taught me. 
We were once sitting in this coffee shop in Istanbul. He was sitting there. I was late, as usual. And so he was scribbling on a paper or on a tissue, a piece of tissue. And I've, I've seen that he, he had written something, but I couldn't really read it. And we got so busy when I got there. And then at the end of the meeting, when we wanted to go, we were halfway, and I was like, wait, we forgot the napkin for security reasons which Naji rarely agreed with, we needed to go back and get the napkin, but he stopped and he was like, no, you never look back, you should always look ahead because looking back does you nothing good. And so we left, um, we left that piece of paper or that napkin and it ended up being like one of the most positive lessons that I learned from him. So how do I manage? Um, I take my time to grieve, I take my time to say that maybe it's not my day, Maybe I'm not okay, but at the end of the day, I am doing what I believe in. And why do I focus on these positive stories? Because I know that I want to read such stories. Like, I want these to be written not only by myself, because while covering Mosul or Syria or Lebanon or Arsal or whatever, um, you just get this negative energy because there's war and there's blood. And then you need this little positive motive to keep you going, not only as a citizen, but also as a journalist, because we all need that. We're all humans, after all. And journalists are really good in hiding behind their cameras or their words, but they always need this positive outcome. So thank you. <laughs>